What is going on everyone? Welcome to my podcast. My guest today is my friend and colleague Sachi Jain. Sachi completed her bachelor's and master's degree at Stanford University, where she interned at top firms such as Google, Facebook and Dropbox. Before starting her PhD here at MIT, she worked for Tesla's autopilot system as a computer vision scientist. Enjoy the discussion. So Sachi, thank you so much for being here. Good to be here. I'm super excited to talk to you because I've been commenting with some friends, um, different people's CVs, and then I thought when, when you go to MIT, you know, a lot of people said to me, oh, yes, Samuel, you've done so many internships, you've done so many things. But obviously, like, whenever you go to MIT, you'll find people have done, like, 10 times more crazy things. I think that is really the case with you. You have the most impressive CV that I've ever seen so far. <laughs> I think there's just a fair number of people who come to PhDs at MIT having done other things first, which is good. I think it mm -hmm. provides some more diversity. Like definitely in my lab, I think at least two or three people didn't come straight out of college, uh, which is a good perspective. Yeah. It makes the professors happy because they don't have to teach you everything from scratch. Yeah, it's also like a difference in like mindset. I think that people coming from college tend to view it still as school. Yeah. Uh, whereas <laughs> like if you've had a job, then like this is kind of another job, uh, yeah. which has pluses or minuses. It means that like, okay, there's like, you know, the time I'm going to work and that's like I'm going to be in the office when be productive and then the time you're not going to work. And I tend to see that those people like treat that the PhD more like that than like yeah. this is going to be my life in which I work 50% of the time, 100%, yeah. you know, all the time, right? So, oh, that's a very, very smart approach. Yeah. So um, you're originally from, from Bay Area, right? Uh, you yeah. grew up there. So can you tell me how did you really get interested in, in science and tech? Um, I think I always was just because it's the Bay Area and that's <laughs> kind of the default there. Um, both my parents were engineers. Uh, I went to a school very focused on engineering. It is hard not to become exposed to it in the Bay. I actually was originally more interested in medicine because my brother was okay. doing that. Uh, and then realized I'm really bad at memorizing anything. And that's <laughs> kind of how you succeed, at least in the intro levels of, yeah. of anything pre-med related. So ditched that boat pretty quickly. I but. saw you did some internship at some medical company very early on, right? Yeah, that was still in the period in which uh, I thought I was going to do medicine or like biotech or bioengineering. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's still a really useful and interesting application. I think that if I came back to it, it would not be from the medical side. It would be from the engineering yeah. side. Yeah. yeah. So I think your mom works for Apple, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. You told me that, I think, maybe a yeah, year ago. Yeah, a while so. ago. <laughs> And your dad is also in one of the big companies, right? He's just retired. Oh, really? Um, so I'm very happy about that. Or at least he is. <laughs> <laughs> so from early age on, you, you got really interested in this, and then you applied to Stanford. Yes, yes. I mean, it's an obvious choice if you want to go in that direction. Stanford yeah. is probably the best place. It, one didn't, of the best it helped that it was like 30 minutes from my house. Um, All right. <laughs> so I think my parents were very happy to have me close to home. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm sure about that. And yeah, tell me, how did you like Stanford? Uh, it's amazing. I think it's probably one of the best places to do undergrad. Um, the campus is, of course, beautiful uh, oh, yeah. and very, very safe, very enclosed. Um, I think one thing I valued about that, which I think is like not necessarily true at like top engineering schools elsewhere, is that there's much more breadth than like the things Stanford mm -hmm. is good at. Uh, like it's like yeah. a top computer science program but also a top political science program, also a top econ program, top psychology program. And so you mm -hmm. really get like the best in the field everywhere, uh, oh, wow. which is which is cool because then you'll like go to an intro lecture and something very much so outside your wheelhouse 
And you'll find out that, oh yeah, this is actually a very famous professor that you didn't know about because you don't look at these things, yeah. right? Uh, just casually, so. I'm curious, you, did you early on start taking classes in like AI machine learning or? I actually was a systems undergrad. Uh, I did mm -hmm. operating systems. I was a head TA for computer networking, like very, very much so hardcore systems. Um, mm -hmm. And I miss it to some extent. Like I think just like, like throwing yourself into some very deep uh, programming project uh, was something you can really only do in systems like that. Uh, yeah, I only started doing more machine learning things during my master's there. Um, All right, you also did your master's for, I think, one year after. Yeah, it was one of those, like, plus yeah. one programs, yeah. Oh, cool, yeah. yeah. So I'm really curious to make a comparison between Stanford and MIT. Of course. Um, which one do you like more? What are the differences, pros and cons on both sides? That's, that's tricky. Um, <laughs> I think, obviously, I've never been to MIT for undergrad or I guess I did grad school at Stanford. Mm -hmm. I think Stanford is probably a better place to be an undergrad. I think you get more, you know, as I said, well-rounded. Mm -hmm. uh, the professors there are extremely approachable. Um, and I think just like the student community there is very tight. Obviously, I've never been to MIT undergrad, so I can't actually compare apples to apples. But yeah, but I think definitely like both great, great schools. You can't really go wrong. Um, I think they have their different strengths. One mm -hmm. thing is that MIT, like the program is EECS, right? Which means EE and CS have never been separated. Yeah. Uh, so like on my floor, there are EE people, the building is the same. Uh, I think the connections between the two are much stronger. Whereas at Stanford, they are separate buildings. Yeah, um, well, they're like, next to each other, right? They, the Gates building and... Uh, they're uh, both monoliths, though. And so unless you like go out of your way to reach out, you're not going to talk to too many EE people as like a CS grad student or vice versa. Um, it's just harder to get that exposure. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I think, one big difference between like having EECS or just having you know, CS, yeah. right? And in terms yeah. of you know, the campus itself, which one do you prefer? I mean, I'm from the Bay. Uh, <laughs> like, I grew up around Stanford. It has a special place in my heart. Um, and the, the campus is beautiful. I really do like Boston and Cambridge, though. I think that one advantage to Boston and Cambridge, and maybe this is just coming from spending, you know, like 24 years in the Bay Area, is it's nice to like meet someone and not assume that they're a software engineer or work in tech. <laughs> Honestly, they probably work in biotech here, right? Like, or pharmacy, yeah. pharmaceuticals or something like that. Um, and that's just a nice shift, right? It makes you feel a little more special, you know? <laughs> so is that stereotype too that everybody, I don't know, you go to a party in the oh, Bay Area and everybody, what do you do? I'm in tech. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like maybe, maybe like I have a skewed view of this just because your circles expand from True. the people you know. Um, but yeah, absolutely. It does feel like the default. If you say you work in tech, like, you know, like the conversation stops, right? Like, <laughs> okay. it's like, all right, cool. Well, some people do startups in tech. <laughs> conversation also stops there, right? It's, it's, it's okay. common, right? Like, and I think that just has a culture difference that definitely makes a day-to-day -day life impact. Um, mm -hmm, for sure, yeah. yeah. One thing that I did notice about MIT, or one big plus side of MIT is Harvard, which kind of sounds yes. funny, but uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but we can take courses from Harvard whenever yeah. we want to. So I think one thing, and this is also true back to the like, do you approach your PhD as school or job? Yeah. Is that it's a lot, I think my motivation to take classes as opposed to making progress on research is maybe more tempered. And so I'm like really taking the classes 
one by one during the PhD instead mm. of, you know, loading up on them just because I really want to make momentum on my research also, right? That's so, reasonable, yeah. There's some balance between that. I haven't even exhausted the MIT classes, much less like go to the Harvard ones. I might try to take some Harvard poli-sci classes or something like that. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm thinking about the same actually, yeah. or, or the business school maybe. Yeah. <laughs> that would be pretty cool. And um, another thing that I'm very curious about, so Stanford is super famous for startups. Um, I mean, Instagram were started there, I think, wasn't the professor you worked with, Dura Lesko, that's one of the, the co-founders or some person high up in Instagram? Uh, I'm not, I don't think Instagram. So he was chief scientist for Pinterest. Oh, Pinterest, I'm sorry. For yeah, a while. Pinterest, yeah. But he wasn't, I mean, one, one big difference between MIT and Stanford is a lot of the Stanford professors are chief scientists at X. Like, oh, I, I see. Know, Salesforce or Pinterest or Feifei was at Google or, right. Um, and I think that is less common here just because we're not close to a lot of these companies physically. Yeah. Right? So. Not, even though now it's starting. I yes. mean, Moderna is just around the corner. Right. So in biotech, yeah. this is more true. But definitely it would be mm -hmm. hard for like an MIT professor to be a chief scientist of somewhere that's like, I mean, New York would be closer, right? Yeah. And so like, <laughs> you do New York, but it's tough, right? Like, it is if different, you're, yeah. If you're not here, it is hard to be as directly interfacing on a day-to-day -day basis with these companies. Absolutely. Yeah. So remember when the first time when I came to Stanford, um, my friend gave me a tour and like instantly fell in love with the campus. I said, okay, I want to do my PhD here. In the end, it just didn't make sense because there's nobody working in quantum computing. Makes sense. So I didn't go and I'm very happy here. Uh, but one thing that I did notice is, so he showed me around for every building that we passed, he was like, oh, this is where Instagram was started. This is where Google was started. Uh, Yahoo was so my advisor in Switzerland. He was actually the PhD advisor of Jerry Yang, the, mm -hmm. the founder of Yahoo. And I think Sergey Brin and Larry Page were like in the, well, a few years later in the office right. next to where they started their first Google search engine. So did you ever get interested in these startups? Not super, to be honest. I think I spent a lot of my undergrad uh, teaching. So I was like a section leader and then a TA. That was a bunch of my time doing research. I've always felt like to do a startup, you need the idea first rather yeah. than just to do the startup. And so if I have an idea, maybe I'll start something. But yeah. at the moment, I'm pretty happy doing what I'm doing right now. So yeah. that might be still, I'm not sure. Do you think, obviously we're not, emerging that scene so much, but do you think that Stanford people are more into startups still than, than people here at MIT? I don't think there's a sizable difference. Okay. Um, I think having met people here, they're also vaguely interested in startups. The same is true at Stanford. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I don't think there's too much of a difference between the two schools on that front. Okay, so yeah. if you... And there are definitely like a lot of companies that came out of here too. Like I think Dropbox, uh, the founders went to MIT, yeah, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. Boston Dynamics. Exactly. Moderna. Right. But a lot of companies, yeah. All the really big names are still from Bay Area. But I think it's mostly a historical thing. I mean, Bay Area, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's still full with startups, obviously. But I feel like it's not becoming the sole place for startups in the US, no. right? And I think part of that is just like, YC is not the only incubator anymore, <laughs> right? There's like a little bit more spread of power, both like geographically in terms of like who the major stakeholders are. Um, so yeah, I think it is democratizing it, which is probably which a, good is a good thing. Which is a good thing. Yeah, it's probably a good yeah, thing. Yeah, it's absolutely a good thing. Yeah. So Silicon Valley is getting really expensive. Yeah, so. and I think also like definitely there are new hubs coming up around the country, like Austin, right? Um, Seattle's always been one. I can't say that's a new hub. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and another thing that I'm super curious about, you did, uh, there's this, how do you call it, Fang, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, 
Netflix, Netflix Google. Google, yeah, that, that's yeah. right. Even yeah. though the F doesn't really work anymore. It's I don't know where Microsoft meta. went. But... Oh yeah, where's Microsoft? <laughs> um, so you did internships in like a whole bunch of these companies. So can you tell us about these internships? So how did you get in there? How did you like it? And can you compare them a bit? I think they were definitely valuable experience. I think especially if you want to be a software engineer, doing at least one of these during your undergrad is important. And obviously there is some value to going to startups, but if you go to a big company like this, you kind of know what you're getting and there is a lot of infrastructure to support you. Mm -hmm. um, and the name is helpful uh, like yeah, when, you're, when, you're, when you're looking for other things. Um, I think also in terms of like understanding whether you like that kind of job, that's a good thing to go to, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, just like the very basics, nitty gritty, the meeting schedule, you know, the type of work you do. Um, I think that that's like a helpful thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the internships themselves, uh, yeah, they were like basic engineering uh, internships at Dropbox. I was on like a web performance team. At Google, I was on like a more search architecture type team. Uh, Facebook, I was a research engineer at FAIR because um, I was trying to figure out do I really need to do a PhD or not? <laughs> you know, um, like what I what I like just like being a research engineer at one of these like big labs. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of that. Um, I had a great time in all of them. And yeah, so I think, I think it was Could you experience. make some ranking, like which ones you preferred most? I think the, the reason I'm hesitating to do that is I think that it's based more on team than it is yeah. based on company. And that's true for everything, right? That's true for your PhD too, Absolutely. right? Like you can't rank schools like Stanford and MIT. It's just like, which advisor did you get? Or yeah. like, did you choose? <laughs> that's, that's entirely it. I guess one thing is for Facebook, I was in New York for that. And that was a very interesting experience, not being at headquarters uh, for a company. It was both like a plus sign and a minus side, right? Like I think New York is definitely a different culture than the Bay Area. Um, I think they had better work-life balance, to be honest. Uh, oh, really? Just because I think there was like more things to do. And I think most of the people I met had significant things they were doing outside of work. And that really did mm -hmm. like change the culture of the stereotype that Facebook has, right? That was different. Um, Dropbox has great food. I think of the, <laughs> of the three, it has the best food. Um, okay, so I should yeah. go to Dropbox. <laughs> that's for me. If that's, if that's like your priority point. Then yeah. I, I'm just kidding. But it's really but yeah. based on like, what is the specific application that you're trying to do? What is your skill set? and then choosing the company that is best at that, right? Um, yeah. Makes sense. So I know a lot of the viewers, they're super interested in working for one of these places. Obviously, it's based on your own experience, but I'm sure you've also had a lot of colleagues and friends who work for these companies. Um, what are like the most important things to learn in order to get into such, such an internship? Yeah, um, I think algorithms is probably both the most and maybe the only. <laughs> I mean, unless you're trying to do a machine learning internship, mm -hmm. in which case, of course, you should have some experience doing ML. Um, but the way that like most of these big tech interviews go, they're algorithms questions, right? And like having like a good, easy sense with that, so you don't need to memorize solutions or anything, but mm -hmm. you're like you know very comfortable with those things is is what's really important. Um, for me, one advantage is that I was uh, helping teach some of these classes that then mm -hmm. they would ask interview questions for. And believe me, teaching in front of like 13 students is way more intimidating than like a guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I think that's helpful. Getting some public speaking experience is helpful. 
again, doing something like teaching or just like presentations or anything where Being you're a podcast. doing a podcast, <laughs> anything where you're talking to someone on something that's not scripted. Mm -hmm. Right. And the more comfortable you can get with that, the easier you'll feel in these kind of interviews. So that's for the interviews, just that you I think it's nervous. a life goal. I think yeah. in general, uh, like public speaking, you know, skills and just like these kind of even informal communication skills, mm -hmm. they come up in meetings, they come up when you're presenting to your boss, they come up if you're presenting a research paper. It's super duper important, um, even in computer science and software engineering. Yeah. Okay. So for a first year student, you would recommend immediate or as soon as possible taking an algorithms class? Yes, I would prioritize yeah. that um, as soon like, and honestly, at least at Stanford, the algorithms class, you didn't super need to know how to code mm -hmm. and the coding part will come naturally. Like the focus should be on learning, in my opinion, the algorithms over like the languages you learn doesn't super matter. Yeah. A lot of applied things you can learn on the job, right? It's like this core set of skills that you really need. Mm -hmm. And you made a very good point with teaching. I also figured out that, I mean, I, I was studying physics before. The only moment when I really started understanding the matter was when I started how to explain it exactly. to people. Exactly, yes, yes. So that, that's a very good trick, yeah, yeah. becoming a TA um, for such a and class. And I think a lot of, especially these bigger schools or schools with like top CS programs, have opportunities for undergrads to be involved with teaching. And mm -hmm. so I think really taking advantage of those is like, I mean, one, it's a little bit, little bit of money, right? You're helping out the community, but like for you personally, it's probably one of the best things you can do. Absolutely. Yeah. And do you think that uh, it's, I mean, how important do you think it is to be at a big name school or do you think, or what are the tricks if you're from a lesser known school to get into one of these companies? Um, I think depending on the company, they have more or less bias in terms mm -hmm. of your school. I think most of these big companies don't actually have terrible amounts of bias. I think the bigger thing is like getting their attention because uh, these schools will come to career fairs, right? For the yeah. big schools and things like that. It's a lot easier to interface with them. If you're coming from a small school, dropping your resume on the website is not going to do anything, right? Yeah. It's like a bottomless pit. And so knowing someone who works at the company who can refer you is definitely, and I think that's true regardless of which, whether you go to a big school oh, yeah. or a smaller one is probably your best bet for just getting their attention. And at that point, once you're into the interview process, it's mostly how did you do? Um, mm -hmm. And so at that point, your schooling doesn't super matter. Yeah. So yeah. if you don't come from a very known school, then the only thing that's maybe a bit harder is like getting the first interview. Exactly. Yeah. But once you're there, the rest should hopefully be very unbiased. I'm not a recruiter, so <laughs> I, I, have, I have no idea. Right. But like this is my generic sense. Yeah. So all the people that you were surrounded with during these internships, um, did you feel like they were really from a lot of were they just from the US or also from other countries? Um, so when I went to Dropbox at the time, they were a little more biased towards big schools. I think that's changed. Mm -hmm. I think that like recently I've heard they're trying to be more diverse. Um, at f Facebook and Google, it was very diverse school internationally, um, especially uh, at Facebook. I was working at FAIR, which is, of course, has a lot of PhD students. Yeah coming from wherever, right? Um, in fact, I think Facebook in, in particular has a lot of connections, uh, you know, to Paris and to Montreal, um, to London, mm -hmm. right? And so they like, have offices everywhere, right? They do, uh, but yeah. like these are like big ML research centers, right? Mm -hmm. I, no matter which company you go to, like there's a lot of good research happening in Montreal and Paris and London, all over the place. But like, I think you see from these specific cities, like 
a lot of people mixing around or going between places. So I, that's one thing, and I know a lot of listeners are from Europe. Oh, and Zurich. And Zurich, yeah. Oh, yeah, Zurich is a big one. <laughs> How can I forget Zurich? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I visited quite a lot of Google offices um, just because my friends were there, and I would always just go there for the free food, to be honest. So I toured all the Google offices from, well, the headquarters, the Googleplex, uh, yeah. New York, um, Zurich, and I think some other places just to get free food with friends. I would say don't pick a company based on its perks. Like, the perks uh, will wash out eventually and like you will be left with the job that you are doing and whether you like it right um, so that's actually a very good point so since you're not looking at the perks so much and also the salaries i suppose they're quite similar it's about the same yeah um what what should people really be looking for again i think that the team is important and unfortunately that's tricky as a new grad um because a lot of these big companies have like you apply and get accepted to a role mm-hmm. not not a role like just like you will be an engineer. And then okay. after you've accepted, they'll do some team matching, which is dicey, right? Like yeah. that feels, it's like, okay, I don't really know what I'm gonna be working on. They might give you some generic idea. Um, other companies don't do that. And so for me, actually, one thing I wanted was to know exactly what I would be doing before I accepted an offer. Mm-hmm. And some of these smaller companies or more specific companies, you will you know, interview with the person who's your manager or will be your manager. And you get some sense, do I vibe with this person? Oh, yeah. Do I like the team? And you go, I'll have lunch with the team. Do I like feel at home here? I think that's super important. Um, and so that's hard to do at like Google and Facebook. I think Microsoft still interviews per team unless they've changed that recently. I, I think so. Yeah. I've interviewed once for Microsoft. Okay, for the record, I. I only went there because they would pay for a free trip. I never actually wanted to work there. But yeah, uh, and I think, yeah, and I really just interviewed with somebody who would have been my manager. I think that's important. Yeah. yeah. But then, you know, when I arrived there, we were like, so what do you want to work on? I'm like, ah, I don't really know. <laughs> that was a bit embarrassing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think this will be super useful for a lot of viewers who are um, early in their career going that direction. Now, another thing that I'm very curious to talk about. So. After you graduated, um, and we cannot go into detail, obviously, uh, you worked for, for Tesla. Um, I wanted to talk about autopilots like in general, where the technology is. And actually, you know what, before, before we go into that, I'm going to tell a little story. We're probably going to remove that from the, from the footage because it shouldn't be on camera. So since you can't really talk about Tesla's autopilot, I'm going to say, um, I think two years ago, my friend and I, we went to Stanford. I was invited to give a talk there about my research in quantum computing or whatever it was. You know, we had never driven a Tesla before. And so we went on Turo. This is like like Airbnb, but for cars. And we just got the cheapest Tesla that we could possibly uh-huh. find. We said, yes, we're going to try the autopilot because I think it was just released that year or something yeah. like that. We got there, landed in San Francisco. We had to pick up that car in some dark parking lot. I, I really was scared for my life. So I tried to drive that car. And I clicked something while I thought it was the autopilot. <laughs> and, you know, first it started keeping the lane well. Yeah. And then there was a corner and we were like, is it going to turn? Is it not going to turn? Well, turns out that that car didn't actually have the autopilot enabled at all. So I just had to grab the steering wheel. Yeah. Anyways, we were super disappointed. But then I figured out in Tesla has this amazing app for your phone where you can control a lot of features about yeah. your car. Yeah. And that dude who, was, who rented out that car to us, he had a few other cars and he was dumb enough to put them into the same oh, account. No. <laughs> <laughs> now you see we're probably gonna not not publish that. And yeah, so in the evening, you know, we're coming home and I, and I just realized, oh look, there's a Tesla S, which is like the most expensive one with an autopilot just next to us. And we have access to it to the app. Yeah. So my friend and I were like, should we do something or should we not do something? I said, okay, let's just park there. 
next to it and see if we can turn on and off the lights. They were super childish, obviously. And, you know, we turned on and off the light. And we're like, haha, look, that's so funny. We can turn on and off lights on another car. Yeah. And then, so there are two functionalities for for moving a car on, on your phone. Yeah, you see where this is getting. Did you use Smart Summon? Yeah, there, that's one of the functions, Smart Summon, where you press on like a location yeah. on the map and the car can, you know, get out of a parking lot and go there. And the other function is just going forward and backward. No right. steering. Obviously, you can't steer. Um, so my friend said, okay, well, I should say that, <laughs> to be honest. Let's just see if we can move the car like one meter to the front and one meter back. So we did that. Yeah. Again, I had, had a good laugh. And, you know, I, I was the one who pressed it. So my friend was like, give me the phone, give me the phone. And then he grabbed and we were kind of fighting over the phone. Oh, no. And he activated, yeah, he activated the smart summon function. So we were like looking in horror. That car suddenly turned on all the lights went out of the parking lot, drove a few meters down the street and stopped in the middle of the street and turned off all the lights. I was like, fuck, what have we done? And then, okay, I sort of first started panicking because I thought if like police comes or anyone, they're gonna accuse us of stealing that car. So I very quickly started driving away. But then we realized we couldn't leave that car in the street because somebody yeah. might crash into it at night. So we came back and then we were talking like, okay, how are we gonna do this? We can move the car forward and backward and we can pinpoint the location on the map, but it cannot possibly park back. So it was already like 3 a.m. by that time. We tried to like move the car back and forth until we'd get back into the parking lot. Wouldn't do that. At some point, a police car started driving down the road and I didn't know what should we do. So I pressed some, the summon button. And the car started driving down the road and like crossed the police car and they didn't notice anything. <laughs> they, they didn't see a driver in there because the lights were on but it just continued driving. Finally, we managed to get the, park, the, the car back into the parking lot. The only problem was it was like rotated by 180 <laughs> degrees. And at that point we were like, okay, screw it. We're gonna leave and not come back. I wish I could have seen the, the face of the owner next morning when he came out and saw his car was rotated. <laughs> okay, um, so that was a little, a little digression from the actual topic that we wanted to talk about. Um, so yeah, let's, <laughs> let's talk about self-driving cars. Um, there exists like different levels of autonomous driving. I think like five of them from zero to five or yeah, so. Yeah, um, Can you talk a bit about that and like which level are we currently at in general? Where we are right now is where drivers can automatically keep lane changes, make turns, do stop signs, you know, like drive on the freeway, but it needs to have human supervision, mm -hmm. right? Like you can't just let it go. Um, and like, this is important, right? Like you, you really can't just let it go. And so that's like kind of the level of autonomy, which is obviously a problem for driverless taxis yeah. uh, as, as a concept, um, but is like, okay, or like fine if like you use it as a tool for a driver, as long as the driver is aware mm -hmm. of what the limitations are and also just the responsibility of you need to keep your eyes on the road. Yeah. And as time, you know, goes on, like obviously these cars are getting better at doing this because especially just because the amount of data is increasing so massively. Yeah. Um, but I think that's flip from when you would be comfortable not having the driver pay attention is a very difficult one. Yeah. Um, and there's like really a long tail of nines that you need to have to make that happen. And so I think just from a regulatory standpoint, we're kind of in a gray area of when, like when should the government be like, yes, it's okay. And you can yeah. like tell people not to pay attention. 
Um, also just from a, like a liability standpoint, just like there's a lot of legal things that go into saying the onus is on the driver versus the onus is on the car, right? Yeah, that um, makes sense. I mean, I watched a few interviews of the people who are mainly leading the self-driving car community, including Elon, and the comment from all of them was that they all expected that this would happen quite soon with AI, and then they all got negatively surprised with how hard it is to actually make it happen. I think I was not negatively surprised, and I think <laughs> you'll find most people who uh, work with machine learning, especially supervised learning and things like that, it's tricky. It's especially just like, the biggest like failure for these models, and this has a lot to do with my research, is like how they behave and things that are even slightly out of distribution. And for a car, everything is out of distribution, right? There's just like so many controls, so many variables, and the like possibility that you would have seen everything in training is low, yeah. right? And so there's, you know, every, there's always gonna be something unexpected, right? And so, understanding that or acknowledging that I think is a big factor in terms of like how these self-driving models uh, develop you yeah. know in the future and I think really getting them to a point where you know we're at like L5 right is like it's it's gonna have to come from a sense of robustness instead of just accuracy it needs to come from like a trust that like you will do well on inputs even if they're not quite what's been in your training set. Mm -hmm. And that's the leap that needs to be made. But even once you make that leap, you know, how can you convince yourself that that's true yeah. beyond just like having drives and drives and drives? That I think is very much so an open question. And that's so, like also, a, again, a legal and a philosophical one as well as uh, an yeah. engineering one. So the training is the hard part. You say that we cannot get all of the data to train the model, or is there also some computational limits? Yeah, and there's computational limits also associated with training, right? Mm -hmm. um, like your model is gonna learn some kind of prediction rule and that might fail, right? That yeah. might not be well supported in, in all cases. Um, I think that there's some pretty, like there's kind of, I think, two ways to look at this, right? You could either say go fully the deep learning route, um, make mm -hmm. everything as end-to-end -end as possible, or you can say, you know, like distill that down into discrete signals that then you have a controller that whose logic you understand mm -hmm. do do like the actual work of like plotting trajectories and stuff like that. And so there's a lot of variety even within companies of, you know, which one they do or what hybrid model of that you you take. And then there is this balance of like, do you understand what prediction rule or what you know output your model is going to be creating because like you coded it versus a deep learning model or how powerful is is that controller right because mm -hmm. obviously with more of these traditional methods your controller is not going to be very smart or yeah. has limits yeah. in how smart it can be so the deep yeah. deep learning method would be that essentially you just throw everything into giant neural networks and you just trust that that thing is going to do so you can imagine and this is not as far as I know, something that people really do. But you can imagine a pure end-to-end -end imitation learning approach, which is literally you have all of this video data and you have all of this data of what the car did next, right? And so you could say, okay, you know, predict from, you know, given the current scene, predict my turning angle for the next round, like the next mm -hmm. uh, second. That has problems, right? Even if you learn that very, very effectively, as soon as you get that wrong, 
you're now off distribution, right? Because you've now made a turn that a driver wouldn't have made. Yeah. You, you're now, maybe you're between lanes, maybe you're like heading into a curb, doing something that a normal driver wouldn't do. You now need to get out of that situation. All and that's right. something that this imitation learning regime would have no data for because like drivers don't do that, right? And so like, this is then the trickiness, right? Of like, you know, this is a fully end-to-end -end approach. There's no like, you know, specific, you know, controller like like in like how you would do it in more traditional traditional controllers like you're predicting steering wheel angle you're predicting you know your accelerator or whatever but as soon as you get into a regime that you haven't trained for you don't know what's going to happen and now you're in this out of distribution regime for deep learning models which is a very dangerous place to be right? yeah yeah it's a general problem with all of yeah. ai i mean we know that it works very well but no one has really like mathematically proven why it works. So often we just have to rely on, okay, it worked in the past, so I guess it's gonna work now. Right, and so I think this is like kind of, I actually disagree on making things like mathematically provable yeah, to happen more. It's, 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 it's too complicated in this scenario, yeah. right? Like, what are you proving here, right? Like there's the, like the, <laughs> the, the scenes are too hard, the models are too big, the data is too, too large, right? Uh, so really what I think needs to happen is you know having the appropriate tests and like Europe has already done a lot of work in this in terms of like what is the regulatory approval mm -hmm. that you need in order to like release cars in in the EU right and like and so like having that regulatory apparatus that is you know rigorous enough and really stress tests is important and even then that might not be enough right and so that goes back to like at what point are we going to be okay with yes, this is L5 or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Um, and uh, which technology do you think these cars are going to rely on? I mean, there's visual cameras, there's all of these lidars. That's the million dollar question, right? Um, <laughs> so I guess a lot of companies uh, have lidar based uh, tech, right? Uh, which is really useful. And so I guess for people who don't know, lidar like is point clouds, right? Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, you have exact, uh, locations of, of like, you know, where a point is being Is it like stashed. a 3D scan of the environment? Uh, essentially, it's like you can kind of imagine just like a bunch of rays, you know, going mm -hmm. out and you like generate point clouds of your surrounding area. And that gives you like a very good sense, like especially for depth, which is really hard. Like that's probably like one of the harder things for vision is knowing how far away something is. Yeah. Right. And so like LiDAR gives you that much more accurate information. Uh, so that's one thing. Another thing is like mapping. Um, you know, is it is it self-driving if you've completely mapped the intersection beforehand? Yeah. Um, that that's a question, right? Yeah. Like like on a practical sense, it's certainly a lot easier if you don't need to like learn or like predict the structure of an intersection because you already have it. Yeah. That means that you could never take an intersection you've never mapped before. Right. So if you're only planning on using your car in one city in this neighborhood that you've mapped, then like you can do better on it. But if you're relying on that too much, you can't take your car on a road trip. Do they already do this? Um, uh, there are certain companies which do and don't do this. Right. Um, oh, I see. It's I'm just telling you like different models of like mm -hmm. what kind of inputs you could have. So there's like, you know, maps, there's like, uh, you know, LIDAR. And then there's, of course, vision and video and things like that. Um, and so all of these things have different like costs so lidar is obviously more expensive oh, yeah. than than just having cameras um though it could be more reliable in terms of like how easy it is to train on that data like we have a lot of literature and very very fast ways to train 
on vision data. LIDAR is trickier. It's hard yeah. to work with. It's kind of a pain, right? Um, and it's, it's really working with these like, you know, kind of three-dimensional objects, which is tricky. Uh, and then maps, even like for maps, there's like your, your HD maps, your like high definition, you know, full surround mapping of the intersection. Uh, or you could just take Google Maps and put that as input, yeah. right? Like, so like you really do have a lot of variety and what kind of inputs you can give to your, to your car. And that's not even getting into like the, the smaller things like radar or ultrasonics or True, things yeah. like that. Um, and so one thing that really distinguishes these self-driving car companies is how much they're focusing on like teching out their car versus how much they're focusing on removing these things, especially due to cost. And so like Tesla just removed their radars. They're going the opposite direction, right? So like, they're going all visual. All they're cameras. going then like Elon's whole philosophy, and he's been very public about this, is to just do just do vision, right? That like yeah. if humans can do it just based on eyesight, then like your models should be able to also making that a reality is the tricky part, right? Um, but that's just the direction. That's their bet, right? Is, is yeah. what they're doing. Yeah. Well, it's going to cut cost a lot. Yeah, and I think also. Tesla has the advantage, um, and this is something Elon's also been very public about, that they just have so much data, right? Because they yeah. are actively driving these cars, right? Like, there are people who drive these cars. Like, they have a full consumer fleet, and, like, Waymo doesn't have that advantage, right? Uh, getting data is much more difficult for them. It doesn't happen at nearly the same scale, yeah, yeah. right? Um, but they do have lighter on their cars, so, like... Okay. Who knows, right? Yeah. Who knows where it's going to go? Yeah. It's also interesting you briefly mentioned regulations also for Europe. You know, one thing that kind of bothered me almost is particularly like in Germany and other European countries, they seem to be extremely strict about not letting these companies actually test their cars on the road because they say it's too dangerous. Whereas in the US, they seem to be more liberal and open to this. Do you think this is going to be a problem? For who? For well, Europe not being able to catch up. It's such a big market that I think they'll be fine. Uh, I also think, I mean, like, I guess that depends on how much you think Congress can get done. Yeah. I think the reason that it's flexible here is that they just haven't passed that legislation, right, oh, to regulate, right? Like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily the U.S. views it as less dangerous or, like, I think they would probably prefer to regulate it. It's just that they haven't gotten quite as far in terms of like self-driving is becoming a thing. You know, now the regulation needs to keep up with it. And I mm -hmm. think Europe has been like a bit farther, a bit. A bit more conservative. A bit say. more conservative. Yeah, um, which can be a good thing. But then again, I think I think uh, as companies are starting to put their cars out on the road, like Tesla's already doing this with their like early access and their beta programs. Waymo is doing this, you know, even like Cruise, Neuro. As they're putting these cars out, like regulation is going to have to start to catch up. Yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah. So that brings us to a very kind of philosophical question. So if you have, I mean, obviously there exist different levels of autonomous driving, but if a car crashes, I mean, who, whose fault should it actually be? I have no idea. Okay, it's I, too, too I, I, like, I, I, I really don't know. Like, I've thought about this a lot, especially working at a self-driving car company. I think this a lot. I don't know who's, who should be like held liable for yeah. these kinds of things. It is certainly a little easier when you say, when, if, if you communicate to your drivers that we're not at 
like fully autonomous yet, that this is still driver assist and that you need to be actively mm -hmm. awake and aware, then it's the driver, probably, yeah. with, with some limits, with yeah. some limits, with some limits, right? As soon as you get to beyond that point, it's unclear. Yeah. Absolutely. I think there might be a very difficult point when we get really close to autonomous driving, where 99% of the time you don't actually have to do anything humans get bored. I mean, I would be the first one who would get right. bored and would start reading a book or something. Right. And then accidents might still happen just in that 1% of the time. Yeah. They and don't and I, I've been guilty of this, right? Like I uh, have driven autopilot a fair amount and on highways, it's extremely reliable, mm -hmm. uh, extremely reliable, right? And so you really have to like force yourself to like keep watching and like have your foot on the brake yeah. just in case something happens. But like, it usually doesn't, right? Because it's yeah. like, it's quite good. And so I think also uh, another thing that's like really important for these companies is like having senses of like, is the driver paying attention, right? And so like Tesla has the thing where you have to like turn the steering wheel, right? Um, eye tracking is something that a lot of these companies are does at. that, right? Yeah. They and watch you. Right, watch exactly. <laughs> and like, obviously that has its own issues or like things, watched, yeah. <laughs> you know, those own uh, considerations. But I think like uh, having this sense of like, is the driver awake and aware enough to operate the car is something that is important regardless, but doubly important um, for, for self-driving. Of course, like there's like a flip side to that, right? You can imagine, I don't think this would ever happen because there's a lot of ethical concerns I haven't thought about but like, if you had like a model saying this person's too drunk to drive a car, <laughs> this person's too sleepy to drive a car, at what point is it the car's the car manufacturer's responsibility to say we're not putting this car out on the road with you in it, versus this is this person's car that's their property that's their freedom yeah. to, I guess drive illegally drunk. Like you know, at what point is that an invasion of privacy to say like we're not letting you on the road? with this like clearly also the car would just say right. no i'm not driving exactly anyway. <laughs> so like, like so like that's again i think both a legal and a ethical area that like we're gonna have to figure out as that technology gets there right oh yeah, yeah. that's quite interesting never thought about it because most people are reasonable and i'm not gonna do something stupid but the crashes right. do happen from those one percent I mean, there's already i think uh i don't know the details of this obviously but i think there's like some cars have like breathalyzer things attached to them. If you like get several DUIs, there's been a lot of uh, discussion over whether that's ethical or whether that's constraining people too much uh, in terms of their like, and also like invasion mm. of privacy if you have to like breathe into something to start your car, yeah. right? Um, and so yeah, it's a, it's a very complicated yeah. area to like work with. And people really want to get around with it, I mean, there, there are always ways they can make the car work. Exactly. Yeah, it's exactly. Just and they, yeah. they also have error, right? And so yeah. thinking about like, you know, especially in like, if it's a vision model and these things have biases, like racial biases um, yeah. or things like that, then you get really into dicey territory, yeah. right? Um, and so there's a lot to think about just on that front. You know? mm -hmm. So where do you think, how, how long do you think it's going to take until we can really make like take serious advantage of these autonomous driving vehicles? I, serious advantage, okay. Uh, I think autonomy, as I said, I, I have no idea and I can't predict mm. that. Um, I'm not even gonna try. Like, I think not close, close. I, I have no idea if it's far. Um, 
in terms of taking serious advantage, I think we're actually like already doing that to some extent. Like um, not just like Tesla, right? Like a mm -hmm. lot of now these more higher end cars have, you know, pretty good lane assist, uh, pretty good, you know, you can change lanes on your own, you can keep to your lane, it'll like stop before the car. Mm -hmm. And that's already something that's like- It's improved safety. It's, yeah. it's improved safety and it's already something that's like, I think, uh, in a lot of cars, like I mean, Mercedes has it, for example, and Porsche, I think, has it. Um, yeah, I think it does. I don't remember. Mercedes does. Uh, yeah, and I think so, like, people are already using that. I also, like, it's now being used in things other than just, like, passenger cars, right? Like, I don't know if you saw with, like, the latest trade show, like, they're now autonomous tractors, oh, right? Nice. Uh, which is, like, a really, really cool use case of autonomous yeah, driving. huge farms, yeah. Yeah, because it's something that's, like, I think a more manageable problem. Like, it's 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 a field and it's a tractor and, like, really... There shouldn't be humans there. Right, and, like, you can, like, plan the routes, you can, like, have some level of object detection and things like that. And, like, you could really make those more efficient and have people of course, then use their time, hopefully not lose their jobs, but like for, for higher income or higher paid uh, things, not physically behind the tractor, right? And so like, that's a cool application. I know that like self autonomous, autonomous driving and truck driving is a very important application, especially mm -hmm. since most of that happens on the highway. Yeah, exactly. Right? Um, so yeah, there's, there's, I think a lot of cool ways that it can be used even before you hit like L5, yeah. Oh yeah. Thank you so much for these insights. Yeah. Uh, super interesting. And then this actually brings us to the next topic, which is your current work. So before we dive into your PhD research, I'm really curious, how come you chose to go back into academia as opposed to staying in industry? I think uh, it was always something that I was thinking about. Um, I had a great, great time at Tesla. Um, it's, it's a great team. Um, I do think that the pace of research is, of course, going to be different uh, if you're in industry versus doing a PhD, right? Like, especially when you're pushing a product, um, you have deadlines, you have, you know, you know, things that you need to catch, right? You can't really explore necessarily all of the different aspects that you would like or like why things are failing or like, you know, how you can make them better. Uh, but of course, it then goes into like a real product, which is very, very yeah. satisfying, right? And like things move fast on that end. And so I found that I really did want to spend that time, you know, figuring out why things work and like being able to just choose what I wanted to do uh, and what I wanted to learn. And so that's why I chose to do the PhD. Yeah. Do you plan on staying in academia? I don't know. You don't, you don't know? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see. Um, I mean, there. There are currently a lot of open positions, I think, for people like you who are very knowledgeable about AI, about research in general. I think, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure yet. There's obviously lots of pluses and minuses to staying in academia or going back into either industry research or just like industry, industry, right? Like, yeah, yeah. like you know, a product line, you know. Mm -hmm. So recently you uh, published a very interesting paper that talks about um, like missing data and images or how you can remove parts. Um, but can, can you tell us about that and like the research in general? Yeah, I, I mean, just taking a step back for a second, I guess, so my research is on um, making models more reliable. Uh, so this is robustness, not just in terms of like adversarial robustness, you know, like sprinkle some noise, make this gun turtle into a gun or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think in robustness in terms of how it actually needs to be used 
in real life applications, right? So for self-driving, right? Like this out of distribution uh, issues that I was talking about, right? Or like how brittle are the prediction rules that, that models make? And what are the different axes in which we can try to control this uh, when, we, when we deploy these models in, in the real world? Um, and so I think that kind of splits into two different areas. One is like building the tools to, to be able to deploy these models and like understand what they're doing, but also from the science level, understanding where these biases come from and what we need to be aware of when we deploy these models so that we can do it fairly and safely. Um, so I guess on either end, the missingness paper, which is one we recently released, and our blog post should be coming out soon, so uh, keep an eye on that, uh, is this sense of one thing that's really useful for model debugging or like understanding why models fail is being able to observe the behavior of the system with and without some feature. Um, and so you can imagine like this is pretty easy for like tabular data or like NLP, right? You just like drop a word and then you see how the prediction has changed. Mm -hmm. Like how dependent was it on like the word doctor or whatever for its prediction? Um, or for tabular data, just like remove the feature from, from your model. For our vision, this is really complicated. Yeah. Uh, this is because, you know, an images image is an are, image yeah. is an object, right? It's yeah. a contiguous object. You can't just like leave a hole in the image, right? Like yeah, there needs to be something like there. <laughs> yeah, especially because, you know, like all these ResNets or whatever are CNNs and like you really need to like slide a, a filter across the image. And if there's a hole in the image, like it's not really clear what it's supposed yeah. to do, right? And so, you know, this is like a really useful primitive that like happens to not work well in this like very fundamental use case, which is, you know, images. And so what people end up doing is they just like black things out or they apply, you know, they blur, they do some other approximation. These, of course, impart their own biases. Yeah. And so, so part of the, the latest research that we had published uh, was first examining what kind of biases those are and like what happens when you just like blindly start blacking things out in image and how does that affect how you do model debugging. And then on the flip side, we also start looking at, okay, what are better ways of implementing this idea of missingness uh, in computer vision? The way that we do that is um, there's something called vision transformers, which are kind of like transformers in NLP, if you're familiar with that. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they essentially take an image and split it into tokens based on patch. And so then they work on these tokens, kind of like words in a sentence. Um, that's where it got its inspiration yeah. from in order to do prediction. The nice thing about that is now your unit is these tokens instead of the whole image. And so you can start dropping tokens, right? And then that can be like kind of a new and interesting way to do this kind of model debugging is starting to like remove and perturb on a token level instead of on an image level. And mm -hmm. this ends up like on our metrics, reducing the amount of bias that you're creating um, as opposed to like blacking something out. So that's kind of the tools and like that's a big part of my research is building these tools and then the on the other side is like more you know what is even the paradigm in which we should be thinking about robustness and at least my current view on this is that we've been focusing as a industry and like as a field too much on the model mm -hmm. and really and especially this comes from at least my experience you know in the past at tesla and things like that what matters is the data 
Like your 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 model like has very little changes in like you know your accuracy and your robustness and your your performance. The data has like so much more of an impact. And so building then a better understanding of how your data set is constructed and what kind of biases are created from these data sets, especially now because the popular thing to do is just to like scrape these data sets, mm -hmm. right? Like you don't even know what's in them, right? Like I can guarantee like Google has like this JFT data set that's like 300 million images. No one knows what's in that data set, yeah. right? Like it's 300 million images. No one's looked at all of them. Yeah. Right? I mean, like a famous example um, that I always think about, you know, when you you just Google the word cow and scrape all of these images. But the problem is cows typically tend to be on a green background. Yes. And yeah. the model is just going to think that green exactly, is cow. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And like, and this is, this is something that like people are used to thinking about on a very image by image level, but we need to move to models of the entire data set and not just like, you know, looking at a specific image and saying like, what does our model think of this image? Because at the scale of 300 million images, like who cares about this one cow, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> and so, so, you, so like moving to that scheme and then like understanding how that, uh, how like your data creates your model's robustness is what I think will eventually come to like help train more safe and deployable models. Mm -hmm. um, and our lab, not just me, our lab has been doing a lot of, I think, interesting work on that front. Mm -hmm. So research being research, I mean, obviously all these things are published. Anybody can see them. Who do you think um, are the main beneficiaries of these papers? Who do you think look into that? Um, so I think definitely, especially the work in robustness is not super application specific. Mm -hmm. um, because again, even like these ideas of like, you know, data set is the most important thing for robustness. That's true no matter what kind of data set yeah. you're using, right? And so, you know, everywhere from like finance to image recognition to self-driving, this is all important. Where that has a limit though, is at some point you do need to be domain specific, yeah. right? And I think something that the robustness community struggles with is matching academia to industry. And somewhat this needs to come from industry side. Like one of the best things for progress of a field in, in, a, in a direction that's useful for these companies is to release data sets and tasks for things they work on. Like obviously you can't, data's proprietary, you can't release all of it. But the more you can publish in terms of what you care about and examples for how do you test if you solved what you care about that it works, the more that academics will be working on things that people in industry actually care about, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is already, in some extent happen for like, you know, a few things with like self-driving, right? Like I think there's Waymo's released a data set. There's like the Berkeley KDD data set. Um, and so like being able to test on those benchmarks is helpful. Those are not necessarily like, it's not only object recognition and self-driving anymore. And I think yeah. companies tend to be very protective of the actual tasks that they're trying to solve. There's then this balance of like how much you're releasing to your competitors versus how much you bring the academic community along with you for the ride. Um, and definitely I think of course like healthcare, this is a big one, right? That's less like privacy over the data and just yeah. that the data is everywhere and it's a mess, right? <laughs> um, and I think it's, it's very like, especially people in the ML community are so used to like very clean organized data sets 
with like the image and the label and there's not random crap in the image Slept or in the labels. And that's just like not true, but definitely not true for healthcare. Yeah. Um, and then there's of course HIPAA and stuff like that, right? So like uh, getting those data sets to, to a place where there can actually be meaningful collaboration with like ML labs is, is tricky and like something that like as a community we need to work on. So where do you think um, academics versus industry is going to head? Do you think there will be more and more collaboration in the future? I mean, there's definitely been even more collaboration just like within the past mm -hmm. five years. Um, I definitely hope so. Um, I think that certain companies are better about this than others. There is some luxury to having a large enough company that has the money yeah. to publish and that. And like you really see this in terms of like the big industry players who actually care about their uh, collaborations with academia. And it's mostly because they have the money and the time to do so. Um, and then where that where that falls is that when you have a company that's like, you know, smaller and like everyone's doing more right. And there's like yeah. not really as much like leeway to like have these academic collaborations or publish something, then that's tough, right? Mm -hmm. It's tough to have those collaborations. And so like making those meaningful for these like more medium-sized companies who are often the ones who are like really releasing products in these new space is, is tough, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where I think maybe we need to have like a better emphasis is you can't just have a collaboration with Google or Microsoft Research or Facebook or yes. something like that. Although I yeah. feel like here it's often the case. I mean, my group works with Google Research. Yeah. Many groups here work with these. Our group, our works uh, works with Microsoft a fair amount. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a classic, right? Yeah. But there are a few small companies that have research departments, as you mentioned before. Uh, I mean, it's just very expensive to have a research yeah. department. And it, it makes sense. And also, like during the pandemic, you could see, and like I hate saying this because obviously, like this is me, right? But like these are the more expendable parts of the company, right? Mm -hmm. Like you saw this with. Lyft and Uber that like the going got tough uh, during the pandemic and like, you know, these like the self-driving orgs and the research orgs, those are the ones to get slashed because these are like far into the future and or for the community. Yeah. But it's not the thing making money. Right. Um, right. And so you need to survive. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so like that's the tricky part for these smaller companies is like building something that is insulated enough from when there's a global pandemic that it doesn't just get cut. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So do you think there should be some more funding, also public funding for yes. industry research? Yes. I think, and like, of course, money is not free. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't grow on trees and it's hard yeah. to like necessarily know how much like government funding there should be to these kinds of things. I think that like it's probably more important to be funding academics like in university versus mm -hmm. companies because academics are even more cash strapped yes. than, 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 the, <laughs> yes. than the medium companies. At least they have some money. Like, you know, where, where, where is MIT getting its money, right? Yeah, true. Uh, from us. And these are, I mean, <laughs> MIT is a private institution in the end right. of the day. So they yeah. do not have, I mean, probably they have some guarantees from the government for some projects. Yeah. But MIT, Stanford, Harvard, they're all private institutions. And I mean, they're not for profit. Yeah but they need to make sure that they're also not losing. Exactly, exactly. And I'm not a policymaker, obviously, but I think the government, it's like government funding is like very crucial to, to advancement in this space. Um, and I don't know if the government should be more judicious or just more generous, um, 
but like that that grant pipeline you know it's, it's a tough question it's a yeah. tough question yeah yeah for the end i wanted to also ask you what is your big dream that you want to accomplish either research-wise or career-wise what, what would you like to do i think and i don't know if this answers the question but i am pretty passionate about this idea of like switching our emphasis in ml from just like the accuracy of things to how well things work in practice. And so that's kind of my big dream is that like as a field, we start to pivot in that direction because mm -hmm. that's the thing that's going to matter uh, at the end of the day. Um, it's not going to. And like my frustration is that like, you know, we've put out a new model. It does, does like 0.5% better on ImageNet. Like who cares, right? Like yeah, <laughs> who, who actually cares, right? And so just what 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 i really want to happen is just like the shift from like here are the things that actually work here are the things that like will make a difference to you at a company and here's why you should like use this method and that should be the frame of mind instead of like here's the benchmark that we now do better on right and so i know that's like not necessarily a big dream but it is a paradigm that i, mm -hmm. I really buy into and that that is something i'm hoping to advance at least with my research Thank you so much. That's a great conclusion to this interview. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. It was a super pleasure talking to you. Yes. Amazing.